0: All right, it's time to preach. Let's pray, and we'll open up God's word together. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God abides forever. Thank you that we can open up your word now, word which is true today. It'll be true tomorrow, a year from now, and a thousand years from now. And so thank you that you've given us such a gift in your word. And I pray for me as I preach and for all of us, Lord, that you would work in our hearts and even greater reverence for your word and love for your word and hunger for your word through this time now. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I want to start off talking about England in the early 1500s, because in the early 1500s in England, there were no Bibles in the English language. As surprising as that is, you might say, well, why not? It's because the church outlawed uh, Bibles in the English language. The only Bibles that were around were in Latin, and nobody could read those, not even, I mean, most of the pastors couldn't even read them, so... England was in spiritual darkness, had been for hundreds of years. No Bibles in their own language, spiritual darkness, and so the churches were full of false teaching. I mean, people thought that the way you got saved was by going to church, by giving money to the church, by lighting candles and praying prayers at the church. They thought that's what you did to get saved. And no one, or or very, very few, were talking about, no, 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 you're saved by trusting Jesus Christ, the living, all-powerful Son of God who came to the earth and who died for our sins and who rose again and who's alive right now and that you can trust Him as your Savior and as your Lord and as your your heart-satisfying treasure. No one was talking about that. And so England was in spiritual darkness. No English Bibles to communicate the gospel. But then, God raised up William Tyndale. William Tyndale had studied the Greek Latin, and he had seen the truth of the gospel. He could read those languages, and he had come to faith in Jesus Christ and been born again. He had trusted the Lord and received the gift of the Holy Spirit, and he knew the gospel. And he looked out over England and saw darkness. Darkness in the homes, darkness in the cities, darkness in the churches. And God stirred his heart to work on translating the Bible from the original languages into the English, even though he knew that would risk his life because English Bibles were outlawed by the church. And so he started working diligently year after year, translating, learning, studying, learning, translating. And finally, the New Testament was completed. It was published, spread throughout England, and the light of the gospel started to move upon England. Household by household, the light of the gospel started to shine. People were saved. The church started to be renewed, and wonderful things were happening. And, tragically, Tyndale was arrested by the church leaders, and he was killed for what he had done. Now, as so I was reading this week's passage in Psalm 119, I thought of William Tyndale. And the reason I thought of him is because today's passage tells us what it is about this book. Just hold your Bible in front of your hands, okay? This, this passage today tells us what it is about this book that would make a man, lead a man, stir a man to devote his life to translating it into... English, so that people could read it for themselves, even though he knew this would risk and possibly and ultimately did cost him his life. What is it about this book that would make it that valuable? Let's turn to Psalm 119 and we will see. This is verses 89 through 96 is what we're going to be focusing on today. Now, if you need a Bible, please raise a hand. We'll bring you an English Bible, English version Bible right here, okay, so you can read it for yourself, Uh, but raise your hand so we can bring one to you. It's important that you have the Bible in front of you, Psalm 119, verses 89 through 96, and this section's on page 514 in the Bibles that we uh, passed out. Now as we go through these eight verses, I want you to notice something that really struck me, and that is the first verse talks about the absolute truth of God's word, and the last verse talks about the absolute perfection of God's word. And so the author opens this eight-verse section with a statement about the Bible, and he closes this eight-verse section with a statement about the Bible. And my conclusion from that is that his main point is to help us really understand something that's vitally true about the Bible. So let's read these verses, and you can see how he does that. Start with verse 89. Forever... O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. Your faithfulness endures to all generations. You have established the earth, and it stands fast. By your appointment, they stand this day, the generations, the earth, everything. By your appointment, they stand this day, for all things are your servants. If your law had not been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction. I will never forget your precepts, for by them you've given me life. I am yours. Save me, for I have sought your precepts. The wicked lie in wait to destroy me, but I consider your testimonies. I've seen a limit to all perfection, but. Your commandment is exceedingly broad. Okay, let's start with verse 89. He tells us that God's word forever is fixed in the heavens. Now, what does that mean? What does it mean to say that God's word is forever fixed in the heavens? Well, God's word refers to everything taught in this book, the Bible. In Psalm 119, the phrase God's word, the word of the Lord, it's used synonymously with God's law, God's instructions, God's precepts, God's judgments, which is all a reference to God's word. So he's talking about the truths of this word. Okay, that's, that's God's word. And he says that God's word is fixed in the heavens. You might think, well, I thought God's word was right here in front of me. It is. But the point is, it's not just right here in these words Here is here, what he's saying is that the, the truth of this book is also firmly fixed in the heavens, which means that nothing can change the truth of God's word, nothing can take place here on planet earth that would ever change the truth that is in God's word right before your eyes right here. These truths are here in the Bible, but each one of them has also been firmly fixed in the heavens. So nothing that takes place here can change the truth of God's word. So what that means, let's just get real tangible. No tragedy that you would ever face can change the truth of God's word. No fallen church leader, as heartbreaking as that would be, will change the truth of God's word, right? No war breaking out would ever change the truth of God's word. No hypocritical Christian that you know changes the truth of God's word. No discouragement changes the truth of God's word. No sin in your life changes the truth of God's word. The truth of God's word is firmly fixed in the heavens. So nothing here on earth will change those truths. Yes, they're here in this book, but every truth in this book has been firmly fixed in the heavens, which means those truths are true now. They will be true hundred years from now. They'll be true a thousand years from now. And nothing can ever change the truth of God's word. That's what he says when he says, your word, O Lord, forever has been fixed in the heavens. Now, to help us see how huge this is, I thought, okay, Lord, what can I do? How can, what can we do to really see this? I want to give you five scriptures. and I just want you to feel the, the wonder that those truths in these five scriptures, they're in this book, absolutely true, but they're firmly fixed in the heavens. I want you to feel that and see that. So start by turning to John 6, 35. John 6:35. That's page 892 in the Bibles we passed out. Now in this verse Jesus gives us a powerful description of who he is. Look at what he says. John chapter 6, verse 35, page 892. Jesus said to them, "I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Okay, we all have heart, hungers, and thirsts, right? We, we hunger for joy, for meaning, for love, for security. We've all got heart, hungers, and thirsts. And Jesus promises that if, if you will come to him, if you will believe in him, who he is will satisfy all of your heart hungers and thirsts. That's what he says right here. Now, now look at those words in your Bible, right there, John chapter six thirty five. See those words right there in your Bible. Understand those words are not just here in your Bible. Okay, those words have been firmly fixed in the heavens, which means they are true and always will be true and nothing will ever change them from being true now think of the tragedy of England in the early 1500s where no one knew that no one knew you could turn to Jesus with your heart hungers and thirst and love him and trust him and believe in him and that he would come and meet you no one knew that Religious ritual, religious stuff going on, but no one knew that you could come to Jesus and believe in him and the living Jesus would meet you and know you and love you. Thank God for William Tyndale. The light went on and people were turning to Jesus Christ. But see, the point is that these words here have been forever firmly fixed in the heavens. Nothing will change their truth. Okay, turn next to Isaiah chapter 53, verse 6. Those words in John 6 do raise a question, and that is, how can we sinful people, we've all sinned, how can we turn to Jesus who is perfectly holy and righteous and sinless? How can we turn to Jesus? And Isaiah chapter 53, verse 6 Tells us That's on page 614, by the way, in the Bibles we just passed out. Look at what God's Word says. Isaiah 53.6 All we like sheep have gone astray. That's all of us. It's you, that's me. We have turned everyone to his own way. We've all sinned against God. And that sin deserves God's judgment. But look at what God does in his love for us. The Lord has laid on him, that's on Jesus Christ, on the cross, the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So what that means is that everyone who trusts Jesus Christ, everyone who trusts Jesus Christ is completely forgiven for all of our sins, past, present, and future. This is huge. This is how you can come to Jesus come to him and believe in him and receive from him, is because he died on the cross in your place to pay for your sins. And so when you put your trust in Jesus Christ, all your sins are transferred onto him and he was punished in your place. And so all of your sins have already been punished, which means you will never face punishment. Now look at that verse, Isaiah 53, 6. That is in your Bibles. But not only are those words in your Bibles, those words have been firmly fixed in the heavens, which means they are absolutely true and nothing will ever happen to make them change. You are forgiven through faith in Jesus Christ. Now next scripture, look at Philippians chapter one, verse six, page 980 in the Bibles we passed out. You might wonder, okay, this is all good news so far, but how am I going to keep trusting Jesus all the way to the end? I'm going to face trials. Those could make me get discouraged and throw in the towel. I'm going to face temptations. Those could make me possibly totally turn my back on Christ. Big trials, big temptations. How am I going to be able to, to keep trusting Jesus all the way to the end? And that could cause a lot of fear, a lot of worry. Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. Here are some more words that have been firmly fixed in the heavens. Paul says, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you He's speaking of the Philippians, the the believers there in the city of Philippi. But by implication, this applies to every one of us who's trusting Christ. I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Oh, this is good news. Because you're trusting Jesus Christ as your Savior, Lord, and Treasure? that shows that God has started a good work in you. You didn't come up with that faith. You were running away from him. He got you, saved you, gave you faith, gave you repentance, changed your heart, took out the heart of stone, gave you a heart of flesh. He began a good work in you. That's the only reason you've got faith in Jesus Christ right now is he started a good work in you. And what this verse says is that because God has started a good work in you, God will continue that good work. God never starts this hard work in anybody's heart, and, and he, never he never starts it and then stops it. If he starts it, he continues it. He keeps it going. So here's what this means. No matter how big a trial you end up facing, no matter how big a temptation you end up dealing with, he will keep you Going. He will keep you trusting. He will keep you strong. He will be comforting you. He will be guiding you. He will be there with you. He will help you. You will never be alone. His presence will be there to help you, to strengthen you, to encourage you, to give you hope, to give you purposefulness, to give you energy and, and, and devotion and diligence to keep moving ahead. This is the best news in the world. You look ahead to the next 80, 100, 120 years of your life, okay? And the good work He started. He will continue. Now, those words are right there in your Bible, Philippians 1.6, but those words have been firmly fixed in the heavens. Think of how sweet it would have been to diligent churchgoers in England hoping that they're being good enough to, to get saved, hoping that they're going to have the strength to endure the trials and the temptations to hear faith in Jesus Christ, a good work's been started. He will keep that good work going the rest of your life. Yes, right? The burdens lift off. The peace and the assurance comes. Your salvation is secured. Heaven's been purchased. He will give you everything you need the rest of your life. This is beautiful. Beautiful. Okay, how about trials that come our way? 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17. Josh was talking this morning about the trials, the heartbreaks that they are going through. Many of us right now are going through significant trials. The Bible says we will go through trials as believers. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17, page 966. Look what God tells us about our trials. And remember, these words, as you're reading them, they're not just here on the page of your Bible. They have been firmly fixed in the heavens. He says, for this light momentary affliction, is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Every trial a believer faces is producing for that believer. So what Paul says here, an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. It's producing for you more. Joy in beholding Jesus Christ forever as you see his glory. It's producing more joy in Jesus' glory forever. That's what every trial is doing. There's no wasted trials. Every trial is a future joy and glory factory. Every trial is producing, producing, producing. That's why God allowed it to come to you. Because he's going to give you a great gift of more joy in him forever through it. Every trial, so let's read that again, this slight momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. Heaven, Jesus Christ, God the Father, the redeemed from every nation, tongue, and tribe in worship. We're looking to the things that are, not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, temporary, but the things that are unseen are eternal, lasting. So no trial, no sorrow, no hardship will ever change that truth. Every trial you face, every hardship you experience... Every difficulty you encounter is producing for you an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. Let that encourage you. Let that strengthen you. Let that motivate you. Give you hope. Okay, one last example. Revelation 21, 1-4. That's page 1041 in the Bibles we just passed out. These verses describe the future of those who have trusted Jesus Christ. This is the future. Those who've trusted Christ, those who've loved Christ, those who've suffered for Christ, those who've lived for Christ. Here's our future, Church. Revelation twenty-one one through four. Now remember, these words are not just here in your Bible; they are there. But these words have been firmly fixed in the heavens. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth. Had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. This is God's people. New Jerusalem, holy city, coming down from heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. That's God's people. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. And they, that's us, will be His people. And God Himself will be with them, that's us, as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Those words have been firmly fixed in the heavens. Nothing could ever make those words not be true. So, church, keep battling temptation because you will be part of the holy city. That's you there. Keep seeking to make disciples. Keep laboring in prayer because as you do that, you're contributing to the bride which will be given to Jesus Christ for his glory. And keep encouraging your trials because God himself one day will wipe every tear from your eyes. God, the creator of the universe, massive, eternal, powerful, wise, here, wiping every tear from your eyes. Don't you love this book? Every truth in this book is here, but it's been firmly fixed in the heavens. You will not read any truth in this book that will fail you. Every truth in this book will be there for you, true for you, helping you, comforting you, encouraging you forever, O Lord. Your words have been fixed in the heavens. We have them we can read in English now. Thank you, Lord. Now, the author at this point, I think, knows that he wants to give us a little bit more reason why we can trust God's word so much. So here's how I put the question. How can we be sure that God's words will always be true? He says that, verse 89, how can we be sure? And he gives us two reasons in verses 90 through 91. The first reason is, it's because of God's character. God's character is faithful, always faithful, ever faithful, never not faithful. Look at verse 90. Your faithfulness endures to all generations, which means God is always faithful. Flawlessly faithful. What does that mean? Faithful. It means that what he says, he does. There's no gap between his promise and then what he does. He always does what he says. There's 100% synchronicity between his speaking and his doing. Perfectly, flawlessly faithful. That's the first reason. Okay? It's because God's character, when God says something, he always does it. He has never said anything and not done it. Now, there's one other thing that's needed, though. Let me illustrate it like this. If I'm faithful and I tell you, hey, I will be there at Starbucks Wednesday morning, 8.30. okay, And if I'm faithful, that means I'm, I'm planning on being there. I'm planning on doing what I said I would do. But what if I got a flat tire on the way? Then I would not fulfill my word. I wanted to, but I wasn't able to. And that's why the second truth about God is so crucial. It's that God is sovereign. God is sovereign over flat tires. God is sovereign over wars. God is sovereign over weather. God is sovereign over diseases. God is sovereign over people. God is sovereign over jobs. God is sovereign over everything. Verses 90 and 91. Your faithfulness endures to all generations. There is his faithfulness. You have established the earth, and it stands fast. God's got total control over the earth. He established it. It stands fast by his will. By your appointment, they stand this day. The generations, the earth, and everything. And they get this next line. For all things are your servants. All things are God's servants. Everything. Everything is ultimately under God's authority. Everything in your life is ultimately under God's authority. Every trial is a servant from God bringing you His loving purpose. Every hurt from people ultimately is a servant from God bringing you more of His nearness, more of His tenderness, more of His love. Everything is God's servant. So God is faithful and God is sovereign. He wants his heart. He wants to do everything he has said. And because he's sovereign, he's able to do everything he said. And if he wants to and is able to, he will do it. And so every single thing that he said in this word will happen. That's why we can know this for sure. Now, how will this truth about God's words, truthfulness affect us? As I studied this passage, I noticed in verses 92 through 95, the author tells us four ways it affects him. And I think his point in telling us four ways it affects him is that we would be affected in the same four ways. So let's take a look at them. Four ways this truth about God's word affects him. First of all, when we understand this truth about God's word, we will turn to God's law In all our afflictions, verse 92, if your law had not been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction. So see, whenever he turned, whenever he faced trials, what this verse means, whenever he faced trials, he always turned to God's law. Do you see that in verse 92? If your law had not been my delight during afflictions, I would have perished in my afflictions, which means every time he had affliction, he turns to God's word. God's word was his delight every time. Now, now why? Okay, It's because when trials come, they shake things and and, and things look like, things that you've relied upon for your security, things that you've relied upon as, as permanent in your life, those things are shaken. That's why they're called trials. And so things are shaking. And so you turn to God's Word, you open up His Word, and here is the unchanging God. The unchanging truth. The rock solid permanent promises. No matter what the trials are, these truths do not change. And so the power of when you're going through afflictions, which seem like they're shaking everything in your life, to turn your heart to the unshakable Word of God. And have that be your delight. Everything around you feels like it's shaking. God's Word is not shaking. As you stand on God's word, you can stand strong and permanent and steadfast. And that's why he says, if your law had not been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction. But because God's law was his delight, he endured and was steadfast through his affliction. So that's the first one. We will turn to God's law in all our afflictions. Is that what you do when trials come? Do you open up God's law? Open up God's word? Oh, Lord, meet me. Show me your faithful truth. Show me what you and your sovereignty are going to do. And he'll meet you as you do that. Second, we'll remember God's precepts because they give us life. That's in verse 93. I will never forget your precepts. In other words, it's not just during trials that I do this. I will never forget your precepts. For by them you have given me life. We're always seeking life, right? Get a life, okay? Where do you get a life? It's one place. Knowing God through the person of Jesus Christ. And that happens through his word, okay? This is where life is found because we meet the living God through Jesus in the scriptures by the Holy Spirit and we fellowship with the Lord and he speaks to us and we behold him and we worship him. There's life. There's life. There's life. So that's the second way this will affect us. We will remember God's precepts because they give us life. Third, we will seek God's precepts and know that God will save us. Verse 94, he says, I am yours. He's talking to God. I'm yours. Save me, for I have sought your precepts. Think about it like this. Imagine that you were in the ocean drowning, okay? Okay. And all these life preservers were thrown to you. And what if all of them start sinking? You're watching them. It's like blah, 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 except for one. Mm, Okay, floating life preserver right there, all right? You would swim to that one. You would earnestly seek that one and cling to it and know, I'm saved, right? Okay, that's how God's word is. All of the ground is sinking sand, the old hymn said, right? Right? On Christ, the solid rock, I stand. So this is the only life preserver that will float through every storm, every difficulty, every wave, every trial, floating, always floating, always floating. So don't don't be swimming over here trying to find this. That's going down, okay? Swim over here to this life preserver, all right? And so... As you do that the Lord will meet you as you do that the Lord will comfort you. And that's why he says we will seek God's precepts and know that God will save us. When we open up his word and trust his word, we can know our future is secure. He's going to give us all the grace we need for everything. Through Christ I can be I am totally forgiven. The cross has secured my salvation now and forever. The good work he started he will continue. Everything I need, he's going to provide for me. And you know he's going to save you. One last one. Fourth, we will let nothing keep us from learning God's word. Verse 95, the wicked lie in wait to destroy me, but I consider your testimonies. Now that word consider has the implication of study, learning, understanding, growing in, in our knowledge of what God says in his word, okay? Okay. So here's what's going on. The wicked could destroy him. He's got these wicked men. We've talked about them these last couple of weeks. He's got these wicked men who are seeking to destroy him, okay? But the wicked men can't do anything to change the truth of God's word. Because nothing that they can do can change these promises. Nothing they can do can change these encouragements. Nothing they can do can make th- false these commands, these statements about who God is, right? This is unchanging. So even though they do destroy him, they can't change the word of God. And so because of that, even though the wicked are lying in wait to destroy him, he still spends time in the word, for the word, because this is unchanging truth. They can't touch this. This is the truth from God. I'm going to sink my roots deep into that which is lasting. I'm going to build my foundation upon that which will always be here. I'm going to meet God, come know God, trust God through Jesus Christ, even though the wicked are lying in wait. I'm going to keep learning God's word. So learn God's word. Memorize God's word. Study God's word. No matter what is happening, the wicked doing things makes no difference because they can't change the truth of God's word. Okay, now, that brings us to the end of verse 95. And then in 96, I noticed, okay, here he's doing something different. Okay, now he's back out to where he was at the very first verse of these eight verses. He's talking about God's word. And look at what he says. The question I raised was, what what final truth then is he giving us here about God's word? And it's in verse 96. He says, I've seen a limit to all perfection. So he's looked all around at the world around him. Okay? Where's their perfection? There's a limit there. There's a limit there. There's a limit there. There, 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 there. No perfection out there. There's a limit to all perfection. Okay? But your commandment is exceedingly broad. Okay, the point is, there's no perfection anywhere else in the world but in the word of God, which abides forever, God's word. And the reason this is perfect is because as we open up this word, we read about the perfect God. These are God's words. This is perfect because God is perfect. And so the words he speaks are perfect. So we read God's perfect promises, God's perfect encouragements, God's perfect commandments. God's perfect truth. This is perfection here. And so when you see that this is perfection then, perfect truth, every word here firmly fixed in the heavens forever. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day, as the author of Psalm 119 says. We will love God's word. We will cling to God's word. We will put our hope in God's word. We will learn God's word. We will pray God's word. We will share God's word. We will rely on God's word. We have God's word. You have 100% true truth that you can build your life on, and you will never be disappointed because he is faithful, and he is sovereign, and he will do what he said. That's what the author wants to say in these eight verses. Now, let's get some questions. What questions does this stir up? It's like, look at this. How about that? Am I being clear? Am I in sync with the passage? We're all here reading our English Bibles together. That's one of the beautiful things about the church. John Ferris over here. Thanks, Josh. And
1: one of the reference uh, verses
0: is 2 Corinthians 4.17. Yes. There was a word in there that troubled me, and I was just wondering if you could explain that. Uh, for this light, momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison.
1: Mm-hmm. The word "weight," associating that with glory, usually to me that's associated with a burden.
0: Ah, a yeah. Yes, it's not. It's not a burden. It's uh, switch. Let's switch our picture. Let's think about gold. If we're talking about gold, then you want you want lots, right? You want weight, and what he's comparing it with is the the light afflictions we have, okay, with a weight of glory, and so it's a totally positive picture. If I said I've got a weight of burdens for you, you'd say hmm. If I said I've got, I've got a weight of gold for you, you'd say hmm, right? And that's the kind of picture he has here. So I bet you others of us kind of thought weight, burden, this is, but that's not the picture he has here at all. Here, weight is an entirely positive thing. Does that help? It's a great question. Somebody else? Steve, I- Paul.
1: Uh, what would you say to someone that says that uh, because of man's free will, I'll say what they quotes, <laughs> that uh, that's why we have sin, sin and trials and tribulations, that God isn't in control. Hmm. Because if he was, then why, why is there all this evil?
0: Yeah. Good question. Um, and one reason we have trials and sin is because people choose sin and, 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 and God's curses come upon the earth. That is one reason. It's a, it's a biblical reason. It's a valid reason. It's an important part of the overall picture. It's not the only part of the picture, though. And my understanding of the scriptures is that above and beyond all of that, God is in sovereign control over what everybody does. There's mystery there. I can't really explain how that all works. But I see the Bible teaching both things. We choose in ways that we're responsible for our decisions. We willfully choose. We're not robots. We're not automatons. We really choose. And God is really in control of, of everything, including our choices. Both are true. The Bible sees no problem with them. And so that's how I would answer that. I can't explain how they both go together, okay? I'm not smart enough for that. And the Bible just lets them lie together, right there. So, now follow up on that?
1: Well, because uh, actually a pastor tweeted that, that God
0: is not in control, you know, and it just kind of rubbed me the wrong way. Yeah.
1: But um, I understand what people are saying by that, that man has a free will, yes. and it's caused sin to come into
0: this world. Yes.
1: But uh, actually... If you look at it, Adam was really the only one that freely chose sin. We we're all born into sin. We sin because we're sinners. Sure, yeah. But, uh, I mean, like you said, there is, there is truth there. We do choose, but ultimately God is sovereign over
0: all choices. Yeah, and one, one verse that you may find helpful is Genesis fifty twenty, which I've, I've referred to often here. Joseph's talking about what his brothers had done. They'd sinned, and he says, uh, what you meant for evil, okay, they meant it for evil, God meant for good. So they're right next to each other. The brothers meant, they acted, chose to do wrong, but what they, what they did, God meant what they did for a whole different purpose. So you've got two ments intentions here. Anyway, you know what? It's time to stop though. Uh, so let's, if you have other questions, just email me or, or ask your home group leader. They'll be able to answer them all. So here's where I want to leave us though. And th- that is church. How do you see the Bible? This book is perfect. The truths in this book will abide forever. You will never be disappointed trusting what God's word says. He who believes in him will not be disappointed, Romans says. You can build your life on this book and you will never regret it. So love God's word, church. Cherish God's word. Learn God's word for yourself. Read it for yourself. Study God's word. Memorize God's word. Talk to each other about God's word. Pray God's word. Meet God in his word. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to our path. Bright light when we're walking in the word. No more darkness. The lights come in the word. So let's read his word. Let's stand. I want to pray this over us. Lord, thank you for the gift of the scriptures. We're at different places. Some of us are really uh, consistent and learning and meeting you in the word, and others are not so much. And I pray that you'd work In each of our hearts right now, what we need to walk away with, with this truth, that every truth in your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. Perfectly true. Will always be true. Nothing will ever change its truth. Oh, we love your word, Lord. Thank you. Strengthen us in trusting your word. Strengthen us in trusting Christ in the word, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.